Hello, it's Nick Brown. We're here today to record a podcast on a fascinating and thought-provoking recent article on child development assessment tools in low- and middle-income countries. This is in the context of early child development, which has started to become more prominent in global health, having been in the shadows, I think it's fair to say, for many years of the survival agenda-driven topics. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome two colleagues, Melissa Gladstone, a senior lecturer in neurodisability in the University of Liverpool, and Sarah Whitehorn, a paediatric registrar, who's also at the Oxford Centre in Vietnam. M- Melissa and Sarah, hello. Hi. Hello. I've got some questions, and do feel free to share the questions. In the context of the new prominence of early child development, can you talk a little bit about what implications um, poor early child development has on at both an individual and society level in, in low- and middle-income countries? Hi, this is Melissa Gladstone here. I think really there's been an increasing interest in early child development as being important in the longer term. A lot of that evidence, and I think a lot of the rhetoric or a lot of the advocacy materials for promoting early child development come mainly from interventional studies that have been done over prolonged periods of time, mainly in higher income settings. So there's not a lot of evidence in terms of If you measure child development in the first couple of years of life, what is that going to show you in terms of predictive validity of longer-term outcomes? And there is definitely this debate about, you know, if you have poor early child development in the first couple of years, does that mean you're going to have less human potential. So there's this term human potential that's been bandied around. We don't know for sure what, if you measure child development at two, what that means in terms of what you're going to be like for sure at school age and longer term. What we do know, though, is that if you put in interventions for children who are at risk or doing less well, that that does make an impact in the longer term. And I think the studies that everybody quotes are the old American studies. There was one called the Abecedarian study, which is a study that looked at children in kind of high quality early child care and showed that longer term, up to 30 and now 40 years, that that made big differences in not just kind of cognitive outcomes, but also that they more likely to have a degree, hold down a job, um, were less likely to be teen parents, less likely even to have psychosocial kind of uh, depression, etc. And they showed in these studies that there were kind of economic benefits, that if every dollar you put in, $2.50 were saved. So a lot of the push around early child development, I think, has come from that. And I think from the idea that it's no longer just about child survival, that we'd be measuring child survival and thinking about child survival, but more and more children are now surviving. And we've got to think about quality of life. And we've got to think about what they call thrival, what Margaret Chang in the, in the WHO recently termed kind of thrival. There are a number of studies that have been done in low-income countries, and some of these have shown benefits also in terms of longer-term outcomes. So the famous studies that are quoted a lot are the studies that were done by Grantham McGregor and her group over the last 20 to 30 years now, showing that if you put in interventions in terms of kind of weekly visits to children to promote maternal-child interaction and play, that longer term, again, you'd have really good gains in cognitive outcomes, 
schooling, but also kind of psychosocial outcomes. So that's really telling. People feel like, well, there must be something we can do. We need to think about this early period and think about how we can benefit people in the longer term. And the fact that so many children in low and middle income settings are delayed in their development or are thought to be delayed in their development because of a kind of multiple factors which affect their development. So stunting, poor stimulation, um, kind of chronic health problems, and, you know, a whole load of things that, you know, if we can get in there, we might make these differences. So it's kind of interesting. It's like we know that interventions help or we know mainly from American studies, some studies from low and middle income countries. And I think we have to be really aware that the studies that were done in the high income setting had a high amount of intervention. You know, they were all weak child care programs mm. with good ratios of nursery teachers to children, etc. The, the new studies that are coming out from Pakistan, for Aisha Yousafzai's study and studies from India do show that even programs that are more embedded at a kind of lower level, embedded into child surveillance programs, may make some difference, but we don't yet know longer term. And then there are these studies from Jamaica. So it kind of comes out of that when you think about it, rather than do we know that there's kind of predictive validity of measuring child development at one stage and knowing what happens longer term. And I think that's the real difficulty then in using these tools and what we understand about these tools and yeah. how we can use them. But it seems reasonable to extrapolate from the literature that's out there that these are potentially trajectory-altering interventions. Anyway, Sarah, moving yes. on, can you tell me a bit about how the CEDAT, the tools, can alter the early child development trajectories? In terms of where I've been working in Vietnam, and I think Melissa's experience in Africa, I think we see that the, the tools itself have to be embedded within something much bigger than uh, just using a tool in isolation within a program. And really, because the challenges are slightly different in the low-middle-income countries, people decide about their children quite early on about whether they're going to invest in them for, for education, even primary education, which may be quite costly for a significant number of families. They make a decision of whether which child, out of probably quite a few, they are going to send to school and send full-time to school and finish primary education. So the things that really the tools can help is is within a program to identify and really help educate parents that issues around gender equality, about you know mild developmental delay and interventions, that they can access limited you know, there are limited resources, but there are resources available and within basic stimulation, the parental and family role that can improve outcomes so that really at an early stage later resources can be utilised better. And I think that's, that's an important kind of role for early child development and the tools because we're looking towards the tools not just identifying for a statistical point of view, you know, which children or how many children, but also to give information directly to the parents during any point of contact. And, and so that I kind of see it as a more bigger role than just assessing children on an individual level, that this is a really time to let parents and families know that there are opportunities out there uh, and to take them. So in Vietnam, we've got a commitment towards mainstream education. And, and obviously, in practice, that's not necessarily what's happening. But I think a lot of the problems are that these children rock up with development delay at school. And really, at that point, the teachers are really struggling 
and then exclusion occurs. So we're looking at things much earlier, and they might be difficulties that we wouldn't even consider as excludable in a Western setting. I think tools have a big role to play, but within a, a general programme, probably run within the health system and embedded in a primary health system, which I think is feasible in many of the settings that we're, we're discussing. Can I just say, you know, I totally agree with you, Saras, and I think it is kind of thinking through whether it's something on an individual level or whether it's much more of a population level assessment. Over a number of years now, it's clear that screening tools and screening for child development is very difficult if you haven't got the advice or interventions to make changes, which often in low and middle income settings aren't possible. But there are these new tools. So this uh, Ilgi Ertem is creating something called the Guide for Monitoring Child Development, which is now doing a much bigger study in three countries worldwide, which would kind of link in some of these almost early intervention messages with something where you're asking questions, getting an idea where that child is, and then providing advice, which is really nice. But I think the other thing to think about is that there's the sustainable development goals coming up and that early child development is really on the agenda. And so there's this whole other thing around the fact that big agencies would like something that could give us an idea about where children are, which could give countries an idea about where the children in their country are. And then if they put in programs can they see benefit? And it's, I think it's quite a debate at the moment. Is that possible? Is there a quick and easy thing where you can ask so many questions to many, many parents and get an answer that gives you an idea about where those kids are? And I don't know if we know that as yet. Uh, UNICEF have created this multiple indicator cluster surveys, which they do regularly. They have got like an early child development items, you know, 10 items. But at the moment, it, we don't know how valid those are really and whether they do provide anything. But there's just to kind of put in there that from a higher policy level, there's this real push to try and have something, whether there's going to be something that we can make that's valid and useful at that population level, I don't know. And I think that is an important point, because just recently at some of the meetings I've had locally, that there is a huge government top-down push on child development, but there's no framework in which to actually deliver that. And that's where they're really struggling at the moment. Um, and even with the Millennium Goals post-2015, Vietnam has uh, been selected because of its good performance overall on the um, development goals up to this point to become a consultation, one of the countries that consulted on the post-2015 goals. And, and those groups are included um, people with disabilities, the rural poor and the ethnic minority and young. So there's a focus towards people with disabilities and the, the marginalised being actually consulted in into the new goals. So in terms of early child development, I think this is quite a positive move and something that tools will become more scrutinised because these are the groups of people that are being consulted and we need to be able to measure interventions um, and outcomes before you get to the point of having problems such as exclusion and the things I discussed earlier. But also in terms of altering that trajectory, I would say that interventions are starting to come through now more within the local setting. And information technology is amazing. And internet access, I have to say, is amazing. And you would see that actually parents are relatively well-connected, use Facebook, have, the hospitals tend to now have 
um, websites with little instructions on child development. And they are coming quite positively towards doctors in primary healthcare and secondary healthcare, knowing that there's things extra that they want to do that can be done, even in these resource limited settings. So I think having tools there gives local, not only researchers, but also local clinicians, the ability to start devising and looking and contributing to their system within the hospital of what interventions they can do and what to educate parents on. Fascinating and very, very encouraging with what you're saying. Can you tell me a little bit about what the tools of CDEP for short, what domains they measure and how you've been using them in the field in, in research and screening terms? So in terms of what they're actually measuring, what we hope is the range of skills that we expect at certain ages in children. Um, and we obviously expect a progression and development of those skills. And in the main areas are in their motor language, cognition and socio-emotional scales. And the socio-emotional is more dealing with how a child develops um, relationships with other people, with their family, and also a sense of their self-importance and their role in their community and society. So the way these things are evaluated has really been through either direct observation where they're given tasks to do but on a standardised test, or through a report which can also be standardised, a report from the carer or anyone else who knows the child. Or there can be an observation of the child in their natural settings. So some observations are done at home and observing what the child is doing and, and interaction at home. But in terms of how these tools have all developed, historically they've really been developed by purely observing children in their setting and, and really lots of close observation over time to see what skills tend to develop over time and by what age. So historically, I would say that although there's theoretical models on child development that have come out since the initial tools were developed, the original kind of basic tools that we're very familiar with, such as Bailey's, tend to have been developed by people observing children um, and noticing what what skills they develop with time. Yes, if you look at the old kind of Bailey and Giselle and Griffiths manuals, you can see where they've either done videos of children over multiple days just to see exactly what they're doing, or Griffiths writes about, <laughs> she writes about sitting in various places, you know, sitting in the tube in London <laughs> and watching children or in parks, which I'm not sure how popular that would be these days, but it is interesting, kind of hours and hours and hours of footage that Giselle used, I think, in, in creating one of the first, the er, really early tools in early child development. And there are theoretical models now, so there's newer tools that use specific theoretical uh, psychobiological models to develop items, but really what we tend to find in low-middle-income countries is that, well, we don't usually get funding to spend that kind of time observing children. Ideally, we would in their natural environment and at home. Um, we tend to kind of either utilise items from well-established tools from the West and adapt them, or as Melissa has done herself, has tried to develop new items using focus groups where our items are unadaptable or, or can't be translated over into a new setting. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about how they might inform ECD interventions to finish up? 
So, I mean, I think that, again, it depends what level you're talking about very much. So in terms of interventions at an individualistic level, it's probably much more about just getting an idea of where the child's at and being able to provide some advice. So I think one thing that's really important to think about with these tools is that in, in low and middle income settings, they need to be something that's easily accessible, that's easily trainable on, and that are not again, screening tools, but much more about that provision of advice and that the training on the tool is kind of also about training on the advice. So kind of the two at once would be much more beneficial in these settings. But I think at a population level, it's probably quite a different thing in terms of we need to have something that we can demonstrate that there, that for example, an intervention such as a nutritional intervention has made a difference not just to children's growth, but to their development. And at present, that's really difficult because a lot of these tools, so there are tools such as the Baileys that are being used in many countries worldwide, which has you know, been translated and in some cases adapted. But these tools, you know, they cost a thousand pounds to buy the babies and uh, take a lot of training. So to do those on any large scale is impossible. It could be done on smaller scale for smaller studies, but for big programs, that's really difficult. So the question is then, can we use tools that could be used on a wider scale, for example, scales where we're asking parents for their observations of children, such as the PEDS or the ages and stages. But again, they're American tools, they cost quite a lot, and they're merely translated rather than adapted. So I think it is difficult, but I think the hope is that some of these tools, or there may be items within these tools that could be used to show at a kind of population level what we're doing. I think we do need to remember, though, that it's also about just looking at what those interventions are. We know that there are interventions that can work. So almost looking at whether those interventions are being put in, in itself, as being a good indicator that things might improve. Oh, thank you. That was a fascinating talk through what's going on at the moment. Thank you. Thank you.